Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Performing Arts, a podcast from the New Books Network. I'm Andy Boyd. Today we're talking with Robert Bartlett, author of Against Demagogues, What Aristophanes Can Teach Us About the Perils of Populism and the Fate of Democracy. Uh, Robert Bartlett, welcome to the program. Thank you, Andy, and and thanks very much for having me. It's a, a pleasure to be here. So I'd love to hear a little bit about your academic uh, journey. Um, we mentioned you mentioned before we started recording that you are a political scientist, but you also have a background in classics, and that certainly comes through in the present uh, book that we're talking about. Could you tell us a little bit about kind of um, how you came to study what what it is you study? Sure. I uh, as an undergraduate at the University of Toronto, I started life I guess as a philosophy major. Um, but became more and more interested in political philosophy, political questions, and so became a sort of political science major. And from there in graduate school, I I stayed in political science, but very heavily in the wing of uh, political philosophy, political theory. Um, And in the course of that, I became most interested in classical texts, Plato, Aristotle, Thucydides. And I realized that I needed some linguistic tools, and so I simultaneously did a master's in classics. Um, and so I've had sort of a foot in both camps. Is this book the first time you've directly uh, written about theater? It is, yes. It's not my first translation from Greek. Um, I've translated Plato and I co-translated Aristotle's Ethics, um, some Xenophon. But this is my first attempt at, at rendering uh, <laughs> Greek poetry into something like English prose. Uh, and it was, it was interesting, uh, fun, challenging. Uh, but yeah, this is my first venture into the theater, especially the comic theater. Right. And and I feel like the comic theater is less well known even by students of theater than, than uh, the, you know, the tragedies of Sophocles or Aeschylus. So could you, could you give us a sense of kind of what were some of the challenges of translating uh, Aristophanes? Sure. Um, well, the first thing is, is something I alluded to. It's poetry. It's in meter. Uh, sometimes elaborate meter, and I am not such a master of English that I th- that I thought I could render Aristophanes's poetry into English poetry. It's been done. E.B. Rogers did it uh, for Lo- the Loeb edition um, a long time ago, but I, I didn't even attempt it. So my goal was to bring Aristophanes's sometimes zany, wild poetry into intelligible English prose, which I hope I, I, I've done. Um, some of the challenges, he makes up words. There are double entendre um, all over the place, and you have to somehow try to bring that in. Um, he can be quite dirty, so what do you do with that? <laughs> um, I, you know, it's the 21st century, so I was pretty blunt about it. I tried to do, my, to do justice to his jokes. Um, but it's also my contention that he is a, a deeply thoughtful thinker. He says so himself. He's not modest. Um, he praises, for example, his clouds, the, the play uh, that's about Socrates, the philosopher. He says that that's the play I work the hardest on. It's my wisest play. Um, so he has an interest in wisdom and in understanding, especially the human soul, the human mind, the human heart and politics. And so I tried to do justice to that side of him, too. It isn't just zany jokes and pratfalls, although that's there plenty. There's also, uh, I think, a kind of sustained meditation on political life in particular, at least in in this book especially. Uh, And so I tried to do justice to the precision uh, of his terms. You know, so if he speaks of law, I speak of law. Uh, I preserve all of his oaths to the gods and so on. 
Uh, a lot of English translators will just say by heavens or gadzooks, you know, but <laughs> he'll say by Zeus or by Hera. And, and, you know, maybe it's an important detail, maybe it isn't, but I, that's just an example of the way that I tried to bring um, what I think is his exactitude into English. True, I had to sacrifice the poetry, but something had to give. <laughs> so. Right. And the two uh, plays that you translate in this volume are, I, I hope I'm pronouncing these correctly, the... Uh, the Acarnians. Acarnians, yeah. yeah, great. Thanks for helping me out there. The Acarnians <laughs> and the Knights, right. which are probably two of Aristophanes' least known plays. I think probably, you know, most theater students in a... Uh, theater History 101 right. class might encounter Lysistrata, maybe the birds, maybe the clouds, uh, but probably not these two. So right. why did you decide to uh, choose these two plays uh, for your kind of uh, first foray into translating classical drama? Well, partly for the reason that you say, that, that the, I thought they deserve to be better known. Um, they have a, a kind of political angle in both of them. Um, and I thought that might be interesting to students today and re general readers today. Um, they're the two earliest extant plays we have. There, there were one or two other earlier plays, but they don't survive, unfortunately. So these are his earliest plays. Um, they were produced back to back. Um, the first one in 425 BC, the second, the Knights in 424. They have similar themes. As I say, they're both very political. And I was teaching a graduate seminar on Aristophanes a few years ago, and I was dissatisfied with the existing translations of these two plays in particular. So I just, I just tried to work up some translations for my own class, and then there was sufficient interest in them that I thought I would try to publish them. So I, I agree with you what you say, that I think these are probably the least well-known of his plays. Um, only 11 survive of the 40-plus that he wrote. Um, and I just thought that, the, that they deserve to have somewhat perhaps more accurate renderings with more explanatory notes and so on to help students get the illusions and jokes and things like that. So, yeah, one of the things you talked about in your answer there was was the sort of political valence of these plays. Now, and obviously, you know, it's a very anachronistic to kind of force a left-right political spectrum on ancient Athens. But could you give us a sense of kind of where you situate Aristophanes in the political landscape of his time? Well, it's funny. The, I think the traditional view today is that, the, I don't know if it rises to Census, but you can certainly read in the secondary literature that he was a conservative. And you certainly can find in the plays um, praises of the good old days, marathon days. Athens wasn't so corrupt and so on. And as I say, that, that is present in the plays, but I don't think it does justice to Aristophanes's breadth of vision and in particular to his radicalness. Um, and so, yeah, it's very difficult to, to place him, as you say, on a left-right spectrum that would be comparable to ours. Um, he is very critical of the democracy. Athens at this time, of course, was a democracy, a, a direct democracy. On the other hand, the criticism, I think, and I argue, um, stems from a desire to make it better, to improve the democracy, not to do away with it, but to improve it, to point out in the element of comedy in, an, in a, a theater that would be filled with, you know, the demos, the people, um, their foibles, their weaknesses, and in a way to warn them um, through jokes and so on. Um, so there's a kind of educational purpose, I think, to some of the plays. 
including the two planes that we're, we're talking about. Now, uh, to pile an anachronism on another anachronism, <laughs> is it maybe uh, helpful to think of him as sort of like the John Oliver of his day, or sort of somebody who's poking fun at politics, but really with a with a uh, intention to kind of educate his audience? That I think is 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 completely fair and appropriate. That he's a satirist, obviously a comedian. He and he will mock, you know, contemporary politicians, some of whom we no longer know who they are. Um, <laughs> they, they're known only from their singular mention in, in Aristophanes. But clearly, the audience would know. And he he's he's great at at, at mockery, making the buffoons of people. Um, in one of the plays, uh, there is an extended scene making fun of Lamachus, a general, whose, whose adventures you can find in the pages of Thucydides. He was a real character. So everybody in the audience would have known exactly who he was. Um, and Aristophanes goes after him, makes him look, it's not vicious, but it's, it's, it's mocking, certainly. He makes him seem sort of pretentious, full of himself, a boaster, that sort of thing. Um, so yeah, no, I think the, the tradition of John Stewart, John Oliver, um, all of those those people are satirists. Saturday Night Live. There's an element of Aristophanes in all of those. I think. Now and that the, that kind of situatedness in the politics of his time is is challenging for contemporary readers. Like you said, there's some politicians we only know of because Aristophanes yeah. made fun of them. Which I think, as a playwright, I love that. I think that's great. So, um, but you know, for a translator, or for a reader, for a contemporary audience. Uh, how do you how do you approach those jokes that are based on a reference that you know even uh, a, a scholar of the classics might not fully understand the right. implications of? Well, I'm afraid I resorted to a footnote in most cases and mm-hmm. saying you know the suggestion may be that he, he's this fellow who did this or this fellow is otherwise unknown. Um, so you yes, I mean the in some ways the the plays are remarkably fresh, easy to approach. Anatomical jokes remain anatomical jokes two thousand years <laughs> later. <laughs> um, but some of the, the the finer points of the history and so on, yeah. What I tried to do was to spell that out, if not in the essays that accompany the two translations, then in the, the footnotes. Um, the background, I should say, to both of these plays is the Peloponnesian War, um, and so it, it helps to have at least a basic familiarity with that war—the war that broke out in four thirty one. BC between Athens um, and her her empire and the Spartans and their allies, the Peloponnesians, broadly broadly construed, and so that's the background of the of the both of these plays. And I would say in the first play, the Acarnians, it's the foreground um, because it's a kind of comedic plea for peace. Um, you give us the fascinating fact that the word demagoguery or the Greek word that we translate as demagoguery is, was first used in one of these plays, the Knights. Could you give us a sense of what that term meant in its time and how Aristophanes used it? Yeah, it's true. I mean, it may have been used earlier, but in terms of the extant Greek literature, it, it does seem that it's the first appearance, demagogia, is in the Knights. And it's an interesting term. The, the root of it uh, is the verb to lead. And the other part, the demos part, is simply the people. But that, that word requires a bit of explanation because I think to an American ear, democratic ear, you know, we, we say we the people. And we mean everybody, basically, or at least all citizens. That's not quite what it meant in ancient Greece. It was a term of distinction. It was the majority 
who by definition were poor, the poorest, and probably therefore the least educated. And they would be distinguished in the first place from the few, the oligoi, where you get oligarchy. So a democracy is the rule of the majority and of the poor. Those are essentially synonymous terms. And so a demagogue originally meant a leader of the people. And it did not have uh, the negative connotation that it has for us originally. Isocrates, uh, rhetorician, uses it in a favorable way. You would be a fine leader of the people. Um, however, very quickly, and in Aristophanes, it did come to have the same harshly negative connotations it has for us. A kind of slippery orator, out for his own good, willing to say the most outrageous things to inflame people, um, exploiting people's hopes and passions and so on, for his, basically for his own benefit and certainly to the detriment of the common good. And that's how it's... But well, both senses are in a way are present in the Knights. The line is something like, you know, demagoguery now belongs to someone who knows nothing of the muses and is ignorant and loathsome, which suggests that at a certain point that wasn't true, that there were better mm-hmm. leaders. But now it's become so debased um, that uh, you could use the word demagogue and it was not a compliment. <laughs> yeah, that phrase ignorant of the muses, I, I find so interesting, which does, yeah. like you say, suggest that a knowledge of uh, the arts was necessary for a leader at the time. I mean, you know, recently I can think of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, after her passing, a lot of people uh, that I know sort of praised the fact that she was somebody who would regularly attend theater or or opera. But that's not an expectation that we have of our politicians. It might yeah. be kind of nice. We, we might think it's nice or praiseworthy if they do. But but if they don't, I mean, nobody would accept that as a valid criticism, right. really, of a politician. So what does that say about the difference between I don't know if it's a difference in, is it a difference in how people conceived of political leadership? Is it a difference in pe- how people conceived of the place of the arts? What, is, what do we make of that phrase? It, well, I would say in, in the first place, the, the muses, that's, that's literally what the Greek says. It, I suppose the closest equivalent would be something like culture, arts and mm-hmm. culture, refined. And I suppose it means in the first, you know, education was not as widely available as it is now. And so one of the things it meant is that the, the leader should have some level of education taste, refinement, and so on. Um, public speaking was so, so important in democratic life. And so we have the speeches of, of Pericles, for example, these beautifully crafted uh, monuments to oratory. Now, perhaps Thucydides has some role in that. He recorded them. but um, So that was a kind of expectation, and that, and that in a way they would represent the people, speak for the people, but in a way be better than the people. Um, and that has pretty much gone away, as you say. On the other hand, you know, what, what a president happens to be reading at the moment, um, is of some importance. Not all presidents read, I I understand, but (laughs) some do. (laughs) And, you know, that, that tends to be uh, of interest and it it can, you know, I remember when president Obama was, was photographed holding a certain book and the book became a bestseller. Um, we, we like that to some extent. We, I agree. We don't expect it necessarily. We certainly don't demand it. Um, but perhaps we still admire that to some extent. Some, let's call it refinement, something like that, or at least an interest in ideas and things. Um, 
I'd love to ask you kind of more about what democracy meant. We, uh, you've, you've kind of given us some of that background, but, you know, we often think of the United States as a democracy or, you know, other, we speak of the Western democracies, we speak of capitalist democracies, and we also speak of Athens as a democracy. But I, I get the sense that, I mean, you, you referred earlier to Athens as a direct democracy, which definitely implies that it wasn't the same type of political community as the United States. Could you give uh, listeners who might not be well-versed in this area some sense of what the Athenians meant when they said that their polity was a democracy? Sure. Uh, It's a surprisingly complicated question, actually, Um, because we, as you rightly point out, we talk about a democracy all the time. But if you say, if you read, say, the the 10th Federalist Paper, or a number of the Federalist Papers, written in defense of the the then um, new constitution of the United States, the term democracy was explicitly rejected in favor of a republic. And what democracy meant to the framers, or to Madison, uh, was a direct democracy on the model of the ancient. Small, there were perhaps 20, 25,000 citizens in Athens, more inhabitants, but that many citizens. And um, so the American democracy is, or republic, democratic republic, is a representative, not a direct democracy, and B, therefore, on a much grander scale. You couldn't have an ancient democracy with 300 million people. That's in, that was impossible. Um, I mean, even leaving aside the tech question of technology, which is needed, you couldn't have a direct democracy. <laughs> so um, ours is a funny mix of certain democratic uh, institutions, but also certain aristocratic principles, the very notion of representation has a certain aristocratic element to it. Um, so to go back to the main question, in Athens, it was the rule of a particular class, the demos. And as I said in, uh, just a moment ago, that was the majority, perhaps the great majority. But there was not much of a middle class then. Aristotle, in a way, laments that and, and calls for the development of a middle class. But there wasn't much. There were the rich and the poor. And they tended to be openly or covertly at one another's throats, at least at odds. And so in a democracy, in an ancient democracy, you would have, as I say, 20, 30,000 citizens, male citizens, of course, they would gather together in an ecclesia, an assembly, and there would be speeches, uh, motions, and and votes. Um, And so it was uh, in that respect, in, in some respects, it was not so what we would think of as democratic. Women couldn't vote, for example. Uh, but in, in, in another respect, it was more democratic because it was, it was a direct democracy where you, anybody could stand up, anybody could make a speech, uh, and everybody had a vote. Every citizen had a vote. So there was, it was more like the, <laughs> to give an Im, imprecise parallel, the New England town hall meeting was, was closer <laughs> to the Athenian democracy. And what were the qualifications for citizenship? Basically, you mentioned you had to be a male, but w- were there others? Birth, basically. Birth. Um, you really had to be born to a- Athenian parents. There were some exceptions to that. There were sort of what are called metics. Um, what would we say? Landed residents. You could, you could live permanently in Athens, but your legal rights were restricted. So it was, it was, it was at its heart tied to the question of birth. Aristotle notes in the politics that sometimes in times of revolution, you, democracies would expand the 
the voter rolls for various political reasons. But but that was the core of it. So it's it's not based on any kind of property qualification like in the early United States. No, because many of these the people were very poor. Hmm. Um, they would be, you know, craftsmen of one kind or another and not particularly wealthy. There were wealthy members of the demos, certainly, but as a rule, they were the poor. And if you were rich, you tended, therefore, to fall into a different class, the, the, the oligarchs. Um, now, there are exceptions so, to that. Pericles was a wealthy, very wealthy man and, and a leader of the demos, but he was a leader of the demos. I mean, Thucydides says, that yes, Athens at the time was a democracy, but really it was the rule of one person. So great was his sway with the people. Right. We speak of Periclesian Athens now. Right. 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 Which was a mixed bag. I mean, Pericles was a brilliant person, but he was also very much an imperialist. He started the Peloponnesian War. He was a strong advocate of it. So I know that there's, uh, you know, at least one uh, quite lengthy book written describing the plot of the Peloponnesian War. Um, (laughs) But... But uh, for, for listeners who don't know these events, and I confess that somewhat includes myself, could you tell us kind of what this war was about and, and tying back to the book, specifically why Aristophanes was so uh, adamantly against this war? And, and that, that seems to be one of his main political preoccupations is sort of uh, railing against this, uh, this war. Yes, that's true, especially in the first play, The Acharnians. Less so in the Knights, which which we can talk about, but certainly in the Acharnians, it's a kind of comic plea for bringing the, the war to a stop in its sixth year. It, um, so some basic facts about the Peloponnesian War. It, it's, its proper name is probably the War of the Peloponnesians and Athenians, as I, as I said a few moments ago. Um, Athens, with its, it had a fantastic navy, and with that navy, it had in its fledgling form, it had helped to repulse the threat of the Persians in what's probably the most glorious moment in Greek history. But that got, they found their sea legs in the course of the Persian Wars, and they continued to develop the, the navy and had the best navy, in, 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 so to speak, in the world. And with that navy, they built an empire. All of the coastal cities are in Greece and the islands were under Athenian control. Some of it was friendly, some of it was less friendly. On the other side are the, the Spartans, rather dour, very stable, very conservative, averse to any change, wary of foreigners. We have thousands and thousands of pages of literature, philosophy, comedy, so on, from Athens. It was written in Athens, and only a few scraps of some patriotic poetry from Sparta. Um, Pericles, in his funeral oration, which I mentioned, boasts that in Athens, um, we love philosophy without softness. We, we can, we're tough, we can fight, but we also have you know, philosophy. Not so in Sparta. Sparta was not a, a great naval power, but a land power. And it uh, had a great many allies on its side in the Peloponnesus and beyond. And at least according to Thucydides, his explanation is somewhat complicated. But his explanation for the war is there was a kind of cold war. I mean, two sides were building and building. and Temperatures were, were ratcheting up. And there were skirmishes, as there always are in faraway places, that look as though they have nothing to do with Sparta and Athens, but they do. And Thucydides says that, that ultimately Sparta grow, grew afraid of, of Athens' growing power. And eventually an open war was declared. 
And this war broke out in 431, and it continued until uh, for 27 years, 404 BC. There was an interruption, but but at least Thucydides argues really it's it's one war. It ended ultimately with the defeat of, of Athens, and really the end of that glorious moment in in Greek history and human history for that matter. There was a kind of bloom in Athens for a couple or three generations, and and it just eventually burned itself out, and it burned itself out with the end of the, the Peloponnesian War. So the Acarnians of, of Aristophanes, the first play I translate, um, is was performed in 425, so the, the war had been on for six years. And he clearly thinks that it was started over not quite trivial reasons, although he makes a comedy of the reasons, um, but but insufficient to justify the suffering. And one of the things that, that Pericles, uh, who was leading Athens at the early part of the war, one of the things that he did, his strategy was to bring in all the people, the Athenians from the fields, the rural folk, the kind of conservative salt of the earth types, who are, by the way, the Acarnians, the title. Athens was divided up into districts, sort of like New York. Uh, and the, Acar- the Acarnians lived way out in the sticks. In the play, they, they make their money from making charcoal. <laughs> and so Pericles had every all of the rural people come in and live within the city walls. If you were within the city walls, you were protected from attack. And he said, we'll just let the Spartans attack the fields. Who cares? We're invulnerable because we have the seeds. So we're going to become a kind of island nation behind our walls and with our navy. And that worked for a long time. I mean, the merits of it could be debated. But it, as Thucydides and Aristophanes, in a tragic and a comic way, respectively, as they both bring out, this uh, was a great hardship. For those people. They gave up their homes, their lands, their ancestral temples, and so on. And these Acarnians, therefore, um, are the main, they form the chorus of the play, and they are the main opponent to the lead character, uh, a zany fellow named uh, Dicaeopolis. And they're sort of like veteran of foreign wars or something, the, the heroes of World War II, of, of, of the Persian Wars in this case. And eventually, through a series of twists and turns, Dicaeopolis gets even the Acarnians to accept the thought that peace would be better. Um, and so it's the play is a kind of celebration of peace, of the joys and pleasures that, that peace makes possible, um, presented in a way that only Aristophanes can, <laughs> uh, including private pleasures, if you get my drift. Uh, <laughs> So I think he, I think he thought that the war was, was all in all. It was probably inevitable, but that, but that it would come at a terrible time, as indeed. I don't think he was hopeful, by the way, that this play would, would force Athens to its or or to the peace table. But of course, it didn't. It was like the sixth year of a very long war. Um, but I, but I do think he, he just wanted to make the case. There's a very funny scene at the beginning when the hero, Dicaeopolis, goes to the Athenian assembly and tries to get them even to discuss peace, and the assembly will have nothing. And so, by the way, I should just say the main plot point is, he says, well, I tried, I'm going to get a private peace. And he, he as a lone individual, strikes a, a peace with the enemy, Sparta. You know, so he, 
he outdoes Jane Fonda in this regard, <laughs> going up to the enemy <laughs> and making nice. And and this is when the Acarnians come on the stage and they're absolutely outraged at this man. At this man, they want to kill him as a traitor, which in a sense he is. But as I say, through various adventures and and comic scenes, he brings even the Acarnians over to the thought that peace might be preferable. Do we have any? evidence that his plays had any impact in terms of the kind of public opinion of the time as as related to the to the war that's harder to see there is a, a famous uh part a choral uh passage a poetic passage in the, in his play the frogs which is actually about tragedy uh, and a kind of fight in the underworld as to who deserves to be the best tragedian sophocles or euripides um but in that play, Aristophanes, he would sometimes, as it were, come forward and speak in his own name. I mean, he wouldn't appear on stage, but the chorus or a choral leader would speak in his name. And there he gives direct political advice to the city that a recent oligarchic coup had its aftermath. The democracy came back after the, the coup. But there he gives direct advice to try to suggest a reconciliation between the two parties. And it is said, at least, there's a record, that he was awarded a special prize for that. In other words, if that's true, I'm inclined to believe it is true, uh, that there he was taken seriously, that, that, that at least enough people in the audience were impressed and moved by his sober advice, uh, which was addressing a, you know, a current kind of crisis, which bordered on civil war, really at least a deep split or division within the city, that they awarded him this prize and recognized his, his sober advice, let's say. He who in so many respects is the opposite of sober. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so what does that suggest about the relationship between theater and democracy at this time? I mean, I could begin with a, a, a simple, not to say simple-minded observation. There was no TV, you know, so um, the theater was both tragedy and comedy was at or near the center of public life. I think it's fair to say these were religious festivals in honor of Dionysus, the God. Um, it was a competition. Uh, our, the two plays, the Ukrainians and the Knights, both won first prize in their respective festivals. Um, they were big events and, and you, you know, you would, um, be talking about the plays for for some time and some of the plays in Euripides for example allude to to many myths and so on which would he assumed would all the audience would know educated or not this was just part of the air that you breathed in, in ancient Athens so it must have been in this respect at least a remarkable place that both tragedy and comedy these were these were the main say artistic venue there was dance and things like that there was certainly music much simpler than our symphonic music, but still. Uh, but really the plays, the stage was, was, was very important. Um, and in, in um, democratic times, you know, it was expected, this was not the preserve of the rich. The demos would come. And there, this is demonstrated in Aristophanes because he speaks to them. <laughs> he pokes fun at them directly. He breaks the fourth wall a lot. So yeah, I, you know, I, that that's uh, I think the, the most that I could say. But, mm-hmm. but it, it seems to have had a central place in public life. 
not political directly. That was the assembly where all could come. But in a way, it's a new, it's a different, the theater was a different kind of assembly, open to everyone. Um, you mentioned comedy and tragedy, but I, I understand there was a third type of play, the satyr play, which uh, doesn't, there aren't any surviving uh, examples of it, I believe, but it, it's it's sort of more ribald even than uh, Aristophanes' comedies, right? Yes, apparently. The, it, it's hard to believe what that would be. <laughs> um, but <laughs> I, I read somewhere, I forget now where, that it was a kind of like palate cleanser after a tragedy. You know? Okay. <laughs> a lot of weeping and wailing, and then you need something to get past that. So, yeah, that's true. But what you say is true. So. Did he? Did Aristophanes write satyr plays as well? Do we have that uh, no, record? No, I, I believe the Tragedians did. Oh wow! Yeah, um, Euripides, I think, did. But uh, yeah, no. I, to my knowledge, Aristophanes did not. We have the titles of about forty some plays, but as I said at the opening, only eleven survive. Mm-hmm. Um. So you've t- you've talked a bit about the relationship between theater and democracy. What about the relationship between theater and philosophy? One of the things that's notable about uh, Greek philosophy, well, it's, I, I guess I'm just thinking of the works of Plato, is that a lot of them are written in dialogue, which suggests a sort of kinship between philosophy and uh, theater, at least to me. Um, is what what is that relationship at the time? Yeah, philosophic dialogues were were common. Plato, of course, is the master, but Xenophon wrote them too. Aristotle, I'm, Aristotle wrote uh, dialogues too, but they haven't survived. We have a number of his treatises, of course, but not the dialogues. It's a long question, I think. In the case of Plato, my short answer would be that he was very interested in the human soul and the nature of the human soul. And one way to present that is on stage, certainly, but also, you, I think you're right. It's a kind of it's a kind of ha- ha- the dialogue form is a kind of halfway house between a treatise in which the author speaks to us directly in his own name, ally Aristotle, and a play. So they're kind of mini dramas in which we see, at least in our mind's eye, um, people getting angry, laughing, swearing, getting up, <laughs> leaving, um, and those actions are tied always to some question, theoretical question that's being discussed in the dialogue. So it's a kind of marriage of an analysis of arguments, but also the human importance, if I could put it that way, of those arguments to human beings. Um, And we we see it, so to speak, on the page of Plato in the dialogues. Um, With regard to Aristophanes in particular, well, one of his most famous plays is The Clouds, and the central character is Socrates. Um, the philosopher, and we see him doing all kinds of zany things, um, seeing how far a flea can jump, and suspended in a basket looking at the heavens, and so on. <laughs> and it's it's a it's a friendly, I would say, criticism, tough but but friendly criticism of Socrates. Um, and so Aristophanes takes the possible kinship of philosophy and dialogue or drama. He takes that seriously too, I think. In other words, in the play, and I would say in particular a comic play, you can present the philosopher. Um, At least Aristophanes clearly thought so because he did it. But to most people, Socrates, there was something absurd about him. And so he was an apt subject for comedy. But Aristophanes' comedies, as I said at the outset, have a certain claim to wisdom. 
And so I think he, he ventured in the clouds a sustained and very thoughtful criticism of, of, of Socrates, of what he was doing and of its potential corrosive effects on the city. And then uh, Plato perhaps gets back at Aristophanes <laughs> by yeah. making him a character in the symposium. That's right. Do we have any reason to believe that uh, the Aristophanes, as presented in the symposium, where he gives this um, you know, famous speech about how originally we were these eight-limbed creatures that were divided into half and we are forced to wander through the world trying to find our other half. Yeah. Do we have any uh, reason to believe that that represents Aristophanes' actual beliefs? It's a, it's a tough question. You're, you're, you're right. I mean, Arist Plato presents Aristophanes, of course, famously in the symposium. And I, I might add, by the way, that, that Aristophanes and Socrates at the end of the symposium are up late drinking and having a very friendly conversation in which Socrates gets Aristophanes to agree about something important about tragedy and comedy. So there's a certain great friendliness there, I would say. Um, as for Aristophanes' views about love or eros in particular, which is the theme, of course, of the symposium, I can give you my opinion, which I can't now prove, and maybe I could never prove it, <laughs> that there is something revealing, I think, about that speech about eros. It's, it's, a, it's both a funny speech, you have these circle people, you know, we were all circle people rolling around until we were split in half. And also, I think something true and, and perhaps something beautiful about it, that we're seeking a second half to fulfill ourselves, to become complete, to become whole in and through love. Um, and I think it, to that extent, it captures very well something about Aristophanes' comedies more generally. Zaniness, comedy, plus something true about us, about our condition. Um, one would have, to answer your question, one would have to, I think, study the extant plays of Aristophanes with a view to the question of the presentation of love or eros. And that would include, I think, importantly, the birds, among other things. But so my hunch is that that Plato was was tr true to something important about Aristotle. Um, so let's talk a little bit more explicitly. You've 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 spoken in in general terms about the way that Aristophanes is a serious philosophical and political thinker. But let's talk specifically about kind of these two plays and what they have to say about this idea of the demagogue. Yeah. And, um, and, and there was this, there's a historical figure, Cleon, who's, uh, I, I gather a, a sort of demagogic figure who uh, Aristophanes is somewhat indirectly attacking in these plays. Could you give us a sense of the substance of that criticism? Sure. Yeah. Cleon was an historical figure. He, he appears in Thucydides and he was indeed a demagogue. Um, Thucydides calls him the most violent man at Athens and the most persuasive with the demos at that time. And he presents a, a certain speech of Cleon. And I, you know, my hat's off to Aristophanes. When Cleon was at the peak of his power with the Athenian democracy, Aristophanes produced The Knights, the second play in my book. And that is a frontal assault on Cleon. <laughs> um, it's, it's not indirect or a mere illu illusion or something. It's quite direct. Um, so maybe I could just give a kind of snapshot of the, mm -hmm. that play. Um, the core of the play is, is the Demos, the people personified, Mr. Demos. He has a household. And in the household are two servants, Demosthenes and Nicias, who were real generals, again, from the pages of Thucydides. Everybody in the audience would know exactly who these people were. And they, as the play opens, are complaining about this new servant, his name is Paphlagon, which 
means something like roughly blusterer, but it's Cleon. In fact, he's named later in the play. And what a brutish person he is, and he, that he's managed to get old, doddering Mr. Demos wrapped around his finger to do his bidding. And uh, um, the, the gist of the play, the plot of the play, is that Demosthenes and Nicias, these two great generals, have had enough. And in cahoots with the knights, the title uh, of the play, who are the upper class, they're wealthy, they own their own horses, are going to finally oust Cleon from the household, i.e. from the democracy. So it's a, it's a plot, a sustained plot against Cleon with the, the two generals of the democracy plus the upper class represented by the knights. And there are many zany things which happen. I, I leave the reader, the listeners to discover on their own, but this is, is successful. And what they do is enlist an apparent nobody, a sausage seller, who's completely uneducated, quite crude. But it turns out he's got some smarts, the sausage seller. And the idea is that the upper classes will use him as a tool to oust Cleon, which they do. But it turns out that the sausage seller is a kind of natural ruler. And he becomes nobody's puppet. He takes over the household of Demos. Um, but he's an immensely skilled uh, leader in his own right. And in the fantastical end of the play, the sausage seller, who's now in charge, basically, um, boils Mr. Demos, like you boil a hot dog. And he becomes young, vigorous again, and everything's wonderful. The curtain closes, so to speak. And so it's a kind of fantasy of, A, getting rid of this nasty demagogue. Again, the word demagogue appears there, Cleon who could have been in the audience, by the way, and not too happy, I assume. Mm -hmm. um, in the Acarnians, I should say parenthetically, uh, Aristophanes mentions that it, because of his play the year before called The Babylonians, which hasn't survived, uh, Cleon took him to court. So he got into trouble with Cleon, but he did not back down. I mean, Aristophanes had some guts, which I admire. Um, and so, but to go back to the knights, um, it, there are two main uh, points, I suppose. First, as I say, just a, a withering critique of Cleon. He is vulgar and crude. He despises the people and yet curries favor with them. Um, it, it, there's an endless uh, series of promises, uh, physical comforts, medical care, um, no tax bills, anything you want will give you. All done very cynically, of course. Um, and so this is, this is just, and I, I might say too, there's, the play is devoted in part to the use or rather misuse of religious oracles because Demos is easily swayed by these things. So they make up oracles favorable to their own side, um, the Sasha Seller and, and Cleon. So, so that part is, is, is easily intelligible and, and uh, a lot of fun to read. But there is a second part of the, of the criticism that I think is in a way more interesting and it's it, and that's the criticism of Mr. Demos, which again is the, the people who would be in the audience. And and in a way, the point of the play is not so much to attack Cleon, although he does that with glee, um, but to say to the people watching this play, "Look, this is who this guy really is." And in order to have a demagogue, you need a demos that's willing to be led off a cliff, as the case may be. Um, and so it's it's an attempt to kind of wake up the people, um, to get them to, to stop being so susceptible to, to flattery 
endless promises of goodies that are all free, allegedly. Um, and, and that's, in a way, the more daring part of the play, I would say. Um, so one could imagine, I think, easily today, a, a comedic play that would savage an, an executive, let's say, power, <laughs> who would name your, name your executive you'd like to, to skewer. Um, that would be easy to see. Less readily imaginable today, I think, would be a play which also said to the American people, look, we get the rulers we deserve, the leaders we deserve. Uh, we did vote, after all. Um, or, or a sufficient number of us voted. <laughs> Some of us voted, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I think that would be, in a way, more daring and maybe more interesting. And in any case, that's very present. It's explicit in, in Aristophanes that he that he he not only went after Cleon with, with great delight and zest, but I wouldn't say he went after the Athenian people, but he criticized them. And it's perfectly clear that that's what he's doing. I suppose he availed himself of the peculiar charms and license that comedy uh, gives one. That if the audience is laughing, they can't be angry and laughing simultaneously. The human soul doesn't allow it. (laughs) So uh, there are so many outrageous jokes in both of the plays uh, and funny, funny things that, you know, the the audience presumably is an up mood. And it's at that moment that, that Aristophanes says, yeah, okay, but look, we all have a hand in this. This is not just one bad guy who's who's making a mockery of the democracy. And we need to, to think about that. Right. I mean, so your subtitle is what Aristophanes can teach us about the perils of democracy or the perils of populism and the fate of democracy. But I feel like one of the things that you've just articulated that he teaches, uh, you know, us, now I'm using us to mean uh, people who work in the theater, mm-hmm. is that it's not just enough to, you know, lambast whatever uh, political figure is currently in the news. I mean, it, really to have a play or any work of satire that cuts deeper than that, you have to kind of widen your focus and and uh, kind of look at how a society could could facilitate the rise of that type of leader. Right. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think that's true of absolutely. a lot of the art we've seen about Trump in the last four years is that the stuff that is really about him and his particularly strange personality feels pretty tame compared to the stuff that says, well, you know, what is, what, what does it say about American society that after uh, 250 years where we've come to this point? Yeah, exactly. No, I think you put it, you put it very well um, that that's, that's, the challenge, in a way, that Aristophanes levels for those who are in a position to to make mockery of of, of leaders and so on. That's necessary in, in, in cases like this. Vital. But it's not enough. Because it doesn't get to the root of the thing. And I think Aristophanes tried, at least, to get to the root of the thing. Um, so again, well, Robert- it, I'm sorry, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> no, go, please go on. I was just going to say that, that it goes back to something we touched on a li- at the beginning, um, that, you know, is he a Democrat? Well, perhaps, but with a great many reservations, but he was enough of a Democrat, Democrat to care about the health of the Athenian democracy in which he lived. So, um, and, and his plays demonstrate that. Well, Robert Bartlett, thanks so much for being on the program to talk about Against Demagogues. This has been such a fascinating conversation. Thank you for having me. I had a lot of fun.